So open your Bibles to num- uh, Numbers, Nehemiah, one of the end books, Nehemiah. And we're going to actually work all the way through chapters 1 and 2. Yes, it can be done, and I'm going to show you tonight that it can be done. So Nehemiah chapter um, 1 and 2. Right now, I'm just going to read the first three verses, and then uh, keep your Bibles open there, and because we're going to work all the way through this. So out of reverence for God's Word as it is read, please join me in standing. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. So notice that right up front, the words of Nehemiah, this Nehemiah is primarily a memoir, set of memoirs of Nehemiah. You'll notice it by the first person singular and the first person plural language he uses all the way through this book. There's only a few occasions where he's not actually writing, someone is actually interjecting something else, other details. Okay, So these really are the words, the memoirs of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in, the, in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who, has, who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Thank you for the memoirs of Nehemiah, Lord. As we begin to wade through its content, May your hand be upon us and lead us ahead and help us to strengthen our hands for the work in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So you'll notice there are sermon notes on the back of the worship guide. Yes, there are six points in honor of the Puritans, Jeremiah Burroughs, Richard Baxter, and all the rest. Of course, if I was really doing a Puritan sermon, it'd be two-hour-long sermon, 27 points, 55 sub-points. But I'm trying, okay? But not really, okay? So our Sunday evening series beginning tonight is Rebuilding After a Hot Mess, Seeking the Welfare of God's People. I've been thinking about the future for quite some time. Back in March of 2020, when the pandemic was ramping up and the state was closing down and the city was locking doors and so forth, I had told Pastor Wes and I told the elders that we will be doing some important rebuilding when this is all over. I've been thinking about rebuilding after a hot mess for almost two years. I also mentioned to them that the pandemic would likely expose where our churches, where our churches, plural, have, become, have some weaknesses that we will need to work on. And so, my friends, even though the pandemic is not completely gone, it is time to rebuild. It's time to begin. And to do this, we're going to uh, contemplate Nehemiah. Tonight, we will work through chapters 1 and 2. Now, there's two items I want to give you about Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah specifically, and then Nehemiah, before we jump into the rest of the sermon. First off, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book. In the ancient Hebrew uh, scrolls, it is just one book. So Ezra and Nehemiah are one book with a storyline that covers something like a hundred years or so, and multiple returns from exile and so on. So you have to read Ezra and Nehemiah as a flowing story, because that's what Ezra and Nehemiah are. 
So what happens in Ezra does not happen in Nehemiah. It's a continuation of a story, just straight on through. You have to keep that in mind. Secondly, and you will hopefully have gotten this, it was in the, the basket back there, you will need a copy of the calendar. All right? And the, this is one to point out to you. If you will look at the calendar, everybody have, everybody have it? Does anybody need one? Jaron's going back there to get, go get some. Neil's getting some. Raise your hands here in just a minute. You've got to have a calendar. Okay, here they come. So when you look at the calendar, you will notice the month of Kislev or Chislev is Nehemiah 1 verse 1. And then you will notice Elul is Nehemiah, I'm sorry, not Elul, I'm looking through the paper. Tishrei is, uh, excuse me, let me go this way. So Nisan is Nehemiah 2.2. So right there from Nehemiah 1.1 through Nehemiah 2.2 is about four months. And then from Nehemiah 2.1, all the way to the time that Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem and rebuilds the wall. Nehemiah 6.15 is the month of Elul. It's the sixth month. And then when they dedicate the wall, Nehemiah 7, 8, and 9, the month of Tishrei is the seventh month. The reason why I'm pointing that out to you is because Nehemiah 1 through most of chapter 12 is only within one year. Okay? That's only a one-year span. What happens at the end of Nehemiah is sometime later. So most of Nehemiah happens in one year. It's almost like the Gospels. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you notice that they all slow way, 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 way down to focus on seven days, the last seven days of Jesus' ministry. Nehemiah is doing something like that. It is focused primarily upon the first year that Nehemiah ends up in Jerusalem. That's all I want to say about that, and the calendar should help you do that. Has everybody got a calendar now? Do you all see that? Okay, good. So you might want to keep that together with you in your Bible and your notes and so forth. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into the sermon, and first off is the report. By the way, all of the points are our words, and even the four sub-points in one of these is our words, sorry. Just the way it hit me. So is the report. We just read it. Verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 is the report. Now, the temple has already been built long ago, back in Ezra 1 through 6. Ezra 1 through 6, the temple had been rebuilt. And then the covenant renewal scene in Ezra 7 through 10 happened about 12 to 13 years earlier. Okay? And so in Ezra 7 7, it says, in the seventh year of the king, of King Artaxerxes, in the seventh year of the king came this covenant renewal service. But then you get to Nehemiah 1.1, what year of the king is it? It's the 20th, right? So it's the 20th, right? This is in the 20th year. So there's about 13 years in there from the end of Ezra to the beginning of Nehemiah. And I think that's helpful to keep this, these two, this book, Ezra and Nehemiah, in its context. But I want you to notice that not everything has been accomplished. There was this covenant renewal, there's the building of the temple, then this covenant renewal on Ezra, and then all of a sudden, 12, 13 years later, you come to Jerusalem and things are still not accomplished. The people have not gone forward. As one commentator said, commentary said, uh, the people were dispirited. They didn't have the spirit to move forward or the, the gumption to move forward with any more work that needed to be done. They didn't move forward and they, uh, and there was lots to be done. And so, notice the report comes to Nehemiah verse 3. The remnant there 
in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. So they're still in a hot mess. They came out of a hot mess, the exile. They're still in a hot mess. They're in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. That was the report. And the report causes Nehemiah to redirect. And this is 4, verses 4 through 11. To redirect. Nehemiah's redirection, notice in verse 4, is upward. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Notice that he did this for days. And when you put the math together from Nehemiah 1 verse 1 and Nehemiah 2 verse 1, you realize that for days was for four months he did this. Okay? So notice his prayer, the redirection, his prayer unfolds into a four-part prayer. And this would be instrumental if you're writing notes. I think this is in your sermon outline. But maybe to practice some of this in your own prayers. It's a prayer that encompasses, first off, rehearsal. He rehearses God's faithfulness and enduring steadfast love. Verse 5, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes... I'm sorry, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. He rehearses who God is and God's faithfulness and His enduring steadfast love. Then there's renunciation, and that's in verses 6-7. through seven. Notice how he renounces his own sins and the sins of his people. He identifies himself with the people of God. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. There's a renunciation, there's confession of sin, not only his own personal sin, but the sin even of his people that he's identified with. He's acknowledging that they're in a hot mess by their own doing, as a matter of fact. He's renouncing the sinful actions and the sinful inactions of God's people. Not doing what God commanded, right, is inaction, is the sins of omission and the sins of commission. He's at renouncing both, both of those. Then the third one is the fact he reminds God of his promises, and that's verses 8 through 10. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So notice he's reminding God of his promises. When we're praying, my friends, I cannot stress it enough to bring Scripture into your prayer. I try to exhibit it in our prayers corporately. I put prayers out online as examples. I don't, I'm not saying anything frustratingly or anything. I'm just giving you examples, it's very important for us, for our sakes, to remind God of what He said. He doesn't need to be reminded, but we need to remind Him. <laughs> because when we remind, guess what happens to us? We remember. Okay, So don't be afraid to do that. 
draw in Scripture and say, Lord, you said, remember you said these words, I believe you. Okay? So he's reminding God of his promises. And then finally comes the request in verse 11. His request is that God would give ear, give favor, give mercy. Give ear, give favor, give mercy. Here's how it goes. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give ear. Give success, or some old translations say, give favor to your servant today. Give success or favor to your servant today, and then give mercy, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And so his request, give ear, give favor, and give mercy. Notice it is not a one-time or one-day prayer or redirection. Right? This is going on uh, over four months from verse one, one, chapter 1, verse 1, Chislev, to the month of Nisan when he finally gets to actually see his prayers being answered. It's four long, gut-wrenching months of looking upward and pouring out his burdens into the bosom of Yahweh, to quote John Calvin. Think about that. That's instructive, my friends. What do we want? I asked this one time. Now I expect an immediate answer. And here's Nehemiah. And he doesn't do that with God. He just continues to persist in praying, 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 praying. It's instructive for us to be resilient in praying and continuing to petition God. Don't give up. That's all I want to say to you. Don't give up. Keep it up. Okay? So four months. Now it appears that the re- in, in this redirection, it appears by implication, it will come out in a minute when we look to chapter 2, that during this four months while he is praying, Nehemiah starts thinking through the logistics, the finances, the administration, and the plans that would be needed for God to actually answer that prayer. Because okay, this is going to come up when we get to chapter 2, but it's during this four months he's already been thinking about them. And all this will become obvious as Nehemiah rises to the occasion. So now we're in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Nehemiah rises to the occasion. Notice verse 1, in the, in, the, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before me, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Um, now I had not been sad in his presence before, and so forth. Nehemiah is a cupbearer. It tells you there's some kind of a unique relationship between him and Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes has to trust Nehemiah because a cupbearer, what does he do with the wine? He tastes it first to make sure it's not what? Poison. So somebody's got to trust him, right? So there's some sense of trust here, apparently, for him to be a wine, the wine, the wine cup bearer and to do that. And so there is some sense of a relationship in what's going on. Notice here that in this 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, Nehemiah the cupbearer is suddenly afforded the opportunity that will launch God's answer to his request. Now he's been bearing the cup of wine to the king for those four months, but it's now all of a sudden at this moment the opportunity, the door of opportunity opens. And this situation begins with a scary moment. The king calls out Nehemiah's sadness. Why are you sad? This could have ended poorly. 
Are you betraying me? Are you a traitor? Are you hiding something? What's wrong with you, Nehemiah? It could have ended poorly. But notice that Nehemiah's prayer was heard by the one, Proverbs 21, verse 1, by the one who turns the heart of the king whichever way he desires like rivers of water. So Nehemiah finds favor and is being granted mercy in the sight of the king. And so, verses 3 and 4, I said to the king, let the king live forever. So his loyalty, he's announcing his loyalty to the king. Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now at this point, the king could have said, who cares about that? You're my servant. But notice what happens. Here's how you know that God is answering his prayer. He's finding mercy in the sight of the king as he's been praying. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And I love this next line. So I prayed to the God of heaven. It doesn't say what he prayed. You know it wasn't a long, written out prayer. It was probably something like, help! Right? Or, have mercy! Give me help! Give me guidance! And that was it. That was his prayer. Very short, sweet, and quick. I, one guy, I remember years ago, talked about this and called this uh, an arrow prayer. You know how you, you pull back a bow and... Like a, just a quick arrow prayer into heaven. Okay, that works. If it works for you, it works for me. But notice that Nehemiah, a man of prayer, didn't just sit on his praying hands, but he has taken in hand the plans that will be needed to move this project forward. You look at verses 5-8, through I won't read it, but you look through verses 5-8, through and it covers logistics, finances, administration, and plans. He has it already worked out in his head. He's taken the time to think it through before the opportunity came. And now when the opportunity comes, he lays it all out. Here's what I would need, sir. I would need these things. He just keeps right on going. right? So he's got it already planned out before the king even asked him. And here he's now able to present it all. As he had asked earlier in chapter 1, verse 11, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man the high king of heaven, we just sang that hymn, the high king of heaven spurs this monarch. And the king granted me what I asked. Towards the end of verse 8, the king granted me what I asked. But notice what Nehemiah says. The end of verse 8, the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, my friends, Nehemiah being the good Calvinist that he was, that's a joke, it's okay, you can laugh, it's okay. Being the good Calvinist that he was, knew that God works through secondary means. Here's one of the ways the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it. It does this about three times, but this is in chapter 5, paragraph 2. If you want to write that reference down and look it up, on providence. Chapter 5, paragraph 2. Quote, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence, He ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Nehemiah trusted in the sovereignty of God, and yet he knew 
he was responsible as part of the second causes, he was responsible to get prepared. And that's what he did. And here it is. God, uh, the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Second causes, right? We do what we're supposed to do. We put our seat belts on. Moose puts on his body armor when he goes to work, right? We put on our helmets. We go bike, biking. We trust in God. Our trust is not in helmets, seat belts, or body armor. Our trust is in the Lord. But the second causes, we still pursue. We still do those things, okay? And that's what you see Nehemiah doing, and he declares it as such in a way that is praise. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah truly rose to the occasion. He rose to the occasion. But notice that once Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, so he gets an entourage of the king's uh, military unit that follows him to Jerusalem, and he gets there, and then he sets up who, who, why he is there, shows the king's letters and so forth. Once Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, he meets with resistance. And this is verses 9 and 10, the resistance. Now, who are these resistors in verses 9 through 10? I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now think about this. He gave them the king's letters, but if you remember that he also has the officers of the army with him and the horsemen, the king's letters are now proven to not be forgeries. Right? So, so the, the locals could say, oh, who, where did you get these letters? Did you get somebody to scribe these letters? No, excuse me, Junior. Do you see the king's army over here? Oh. Oh, this is legit. These letters are legit. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So, now the king had sent his with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when San, Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. There's a resistance here. Who are these resistors? Well, some of them are full-blooded goyim use the Hebrew word. They are full-blooded Gentiles with not a drop of Abraham's blood and DNA in their bones anywhere. But others come from a mixed line of Israelites and Gentiles, and all of that came about when the king of Assyria, hundreds of years earlier, when the king of Assyria exported most of Israel out of the northern regions and then imported hordes of Gentiles into that northern region. If you want to read more Read 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. And so many of these resistors are syncretists. And what they've done is they've melded. If you read 2 Kings 17, you cannot miss it. They have melded together their ancient Near Eastern religions with some form of Yahweh worship. If you were in the adult class this morning and I read to you Jeroboam, about what happened with Jeroboam, you know what I'm referring to some form of Yahweh worship. They had melded it together. To put it in a very unpopular term, but I think it's helpful, they were religious half-breeds. They were religious half-breeds. And that will be significant, a significant point to remember when we get later in Nehemiah to the passage where there is a prohibition for, uh, against mixed marriages later in Nehemiah. I'll deal with that more then, but... If you're listening to me now, it will help to answer your questions when you read that part of Nehemiah. Further, my friends, the memoirs of Nehemiah are full of accounts of trouble. Now this part, if you read my letter a few weeks back, some of this will sound familiar. Okay, The memoirs of Nehemiah are full of accounts of trouble. 
And the first trouble comes from outside the church, starting right here at verse 9 and 10. It comes from outside the church. It is stirred up by fellows like Sanballat and Tobiah. You see it in verses 9 and 10, and then you drop down to verse 19, and you find there's uh, an Arab involved here. His name is Geshem the Arab. And then as you go on to chapter 4 and chapter 6 and chapter 13, they just keep coming back at Nehemiah, pursuing Nehemiah, targeting Nehemiah over and over again. So this trouble is from outside the church, stirred up by fellows like Sanballat and Tobiah. God's people have come out of the hot mess of their captivity and exile, and they are still in a hot mess. And notice that Nehemiah meets this hot mess, specifically the trouble from outside the church at this point, probably around the first day that he arrives in Jerusalem. And when ne- what Nehemiah meets are people from outside the church, verse 10, who are greatly displeased, quote, that someone has come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now that phrase is where we get the subtitle to the series from, but that phrase helps you to kind of get a context of what's going on in Nehemiah. What Nehemiah is after in the end is really seeking the welfare of the people of Israel and what he is doing, all that he's doing here. And they're displeased, the, out, these resistors are. Nehemiah's name in Hebrew means Yahweh comforts. Yahweh comforts, the Lord comforts. And he had come, notice where Nehemiah had come. He had come from his place of wealth at the city of Susa and the citadel there. He'd come from there. He'd come to condescend to dwell in broken down Jerusalem to seek the welfare of God's people. Now, that assertion that I just made to you, that Nehemiah had come to seek the welfare of God's people while they were oppressed and impoverished, that he had come to seek the welfare of God's people in the very place where they were were oppressed and impoverished, sounds like John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, built His tent among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Nehemiah is a type of our Lord Jesus Christ and the condescension of our Lord. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor. He entered our hot mess, so that through His poverty we might become rich. Do you hear it? There's gospel in Nehemiah. Somebody needs to say, Woo! Ha! Ee! Thank you. But it's true, there's gospel here. Nehemiah is a type of Jesus. He's a type of the greater Nehemiah. The one in whom we receive the comfort of the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. The God and Father, uh, the God, uh, excuse me, the one from whom we receive the comfort of the Father who has come to us in our hot mess. He has come and set up his tent, his tabernacle amongst us. He set up his tent among our shambles and shacks. He has come and inserted Himself into our being oppressed and impoverished. He has come to seek, He's come to us to seek the welfare of God's people. And so this episode, just verses 9 and 10, as you stop and think about what's going on here, draws us upward and draws us onward to look with anticipation to the Lord who comforts to anticipate the greater Nehemiah who comes in the flesh to seek the welfare of of his people, who comes in person, 
into our hot mess. To do what? To rebuild what has been decimated and to shore up the welfare of God's people. That's gospel. That's what's going on here. And so, notice further that God's people will have trouble at times. Think about it. This is what's happening here all the way through Nehemiah. His people, God's people have trouble. God's people will have trouble at times. But following the greater Nehemiah, we have a proper way to go that does not play the game by the shifting, changing rules of the opposition. And that was what Alan was reading, and you've been hearing Sunday mornings as we walk through 1 Peter, that we're to see ourselves as, spend our time as exiles and sojourners, not uh, abstaining from from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our souls, keeping our conduct before the goyim, before the majority culture, keeping our conduct honorable, so that when... When, when, when they do speak of us as evildoers, as by the way, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem will do to Nehemiah all the way through this book, they will speak of him as an evildoer. And when they speak of us as evildoers, they'll be put to shame on the day of God's visitation. We have a way forward. There will be trouble for God's people, but we have a way forward as we follow the greater Nehemiah. Well, that was dealing with the resistance. And so the resistance then leads Nehemiah to secretly reconnoiter the situation. And that's verses 11 through 16. The reconnaissance of Nehemiah verifies all that he'd heard in his brother's report. He goes around the walls at night with only a few people with him so that nobody knows what he's doing. And he goes out and he sees the whole city, all the walls decimated. So when you end the the reconnaissance, you realize it's dismal, And it's insurmountable. It's impossible to do what needs to be done. My friends, this is Nehemiah's faith. The God who rescues His incapable people from the hands of a world superpower, Egypt. The God who takes a shepherd boy, a little scrawny fellow, and by Him brings a giant down and raises that little guy up to be a king for His people. The God who can turn the leprous skin of a Syrian general and make it whole and smooth as a baby's can do something about this dismal, insurmountable situation. That's Nehemiah's faith. That's why he's doing what he's doing. And everything is moving in that direction to the point that Nehemiah can state in verse 12. And I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And so after assessing the conditions and the situation, Nehemiah announces, announces that he has his intentions and that he has the funds, he has the resources, and he has the authority to do. And he receives two reflex responses. He receives two reflex responses. It's in verse 17. So notice how Nehemiah faces the situation, the dismal situation of these dispirited people of God And notice what he says, verse 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Notice he doesn't sugarcoat it. No Pollyannaism here. You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, 
Let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that is, had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. He's recounting the fact that uh, this is his intention and that he has the king's blessing and the greater king's blessing, right? The hand of my God was upon me and Artaxerxes had given me all these funds and these letters, etc. Nehemiah, notice, faces the dismal situation of these dispirited people of God and also what he has been commissioned to accomplish and he plans to do. I find that helpful. I find that very, very informative. It's important to see your situation as it really is. It was the ancient historian Thucydides in his history on the, Poly- the history of the Polynesian Wars who observed this. Quote, the bravest are surely those who have the clearest vision of what is before them, glory and danger alike, and notwithstanding, go out to meet it. That's what Nehemiah is doing. It's a great description of Nehemiah here. And God's people react. Here's the first reflex. God's people react with verse 18. They said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. There's the first reflex. God's people who've been dispirited have someone leading them now to rebuild after a hot mess. And they say, yes, we're going we're gonna to piggyback on your faith. We're going to piggyback on your trust. We're going to piggyback on your authority. We're going we're gonna to side with you. We're going to do this. Let us arise and rise up and build. And they strengthen their hands to work. That was the first reflex. It was an amen is what it was. It was let's do this. But then God's opponents, verse 19. God's opponents, those who were displeased that Nehemiah had come to seek the welfare of God's people, resist this plan to rebuild after a hot mess. Look at their resistance, verse 19. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Notice that. They are speaking against Nehemiah as an evildoer. You're a traitor. You're rebelling against the king. And they put it all over. Twitter, Facebook, and CNN, and Fox News. they got to put out everywhere. And so their response, their reflexes, they're displeased. Um, These are the ones who are displeased, and so they're resistant. A part of the resistance is a propaganda campaign against Nehemiah. And I want you to notice Nehemiah's reflex. This is his own reflex, and it surfaces here. What does Nehemiah do? Verse 20, then I replied to them, the God of heaven, notice where his faith is, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you, you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. You are not part of the covenant community. You have no claim to this. I want you to notice Nehemiah's reflex. Because this reflex will come up over and over again every time these chaps complain against him and charge him and accuse him of doing evil. He will come back the same way. Notice that Nehemiah does not give the naysayers and obstructionists hardly any time or hardly any energy. He doesn't spend any time with them. I replied, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we as servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, etc. He's done. He's not going to deal with it anymore. 
because he's not afraid of them. He's not worried about them. Think about how instructive that is for us. He just doesn't let their anxiety become his anxiety. And you'll see that again, and I challenge you to read the rest of Nehemiah. Watch for that, and you'll see it. And this is what Nehemiah does, and this is what our Lord Jesus Christ does, the greater Nehemiah. In the world, you will have tribulation. But in me, you will have peace. I've overcome the world. And so, my friends, as we wrap up Nehemiah 1 and 2, there's so many things I could say, but let me just highlight these three. Remembering the picture, the type of Jesus in here and all of that, let me just recall these three. First off, dear friends, prayer. Persistent prayer over long stretches of time and planning. That's a good thing. And so... If we're interested in rebuilding after a hot mess, let us be spending time praying. Praying individually. Praying as families. Praying as a church. Praying together. Praying. And not anticipating some immediate response. Let us pray. And in our trust in God, let us plan. Pray. Praying over a long period of time and planning. Secondly, God's sovereignty and human action. God's sovereignty does not make us irresponsible, right? That gives us courage to be responsible, to do responsible things, because we believe ultimately that it's all in God's control and God's hands, and that we're part of the answering of God's prayer, actually. It's interesting to me that as Nehemiah is praying in chapter 1, as he's planning and thinking through all the administrative and the logistical and the funds, that that's actually part of God's answering to His prayer. When He says, give me favor uh, with this man, His planning was God working in His heart already to begin answering His prayer long before He saw His prayer answered. And so God's sovereignty and human action. The third thing, dear friends, opposition. Know that opposition can happen, will likely happen, a time here, a time over there, not that it will be 24-7 the rest of our lives, but we should be a people, as I said this morning, the, the people who are less panicky than everybody else. Less worried about opposition because we already know from the Old Testament and the New Testament that it's likely to happen. We're not shocked. We're not surprised. And therefore, we're not running around screaming, Ah! We know it, but we also know that the greater Nehemiah will walk us through and so, my friends, let us all begin our redirection by turning upward, by praying and planning as we seek together the welfare of God's people as we rebuild after a hot mess. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we are so grateful. Again, as I say, we're grateful for the memoirs of Nehemiah. I pray that as we work through this whole series that you would encourage our hearts like they've never been encouraged. Lord, it is such good news to hear not only that Nehemiah is this type of Jesus, but what that means, that our Lord Jesus did come into our hot mess personally. He came to fortify us. He came to strengthen us. He came to seek the welfare of Your people. Lord, help us to be a praying, persistently praying people, to be a planning people. Help us, Lord God, that we may, uh, as we face opposition, to not panic, to not be scared, but to trust You and to walk forward with that confidence. Lord, hear our prayer and let our cry come unto You. Amen.